The Tom Woods Show, episode 2106. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. I'm giving away three free courses from my Liberty Classroom. One of them is ex-Marxist Michael Rechtenwald teaching you about critical theory so you can understand leftism and fight it better, as well as our course on how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America and the history of the conservative and libertarian movements. Check it out at 3freecourses.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. A couple of very special guests with us today. First is Jennifer Say, and that's spelled S-E-Y. Until recently, she was Levi's brand president. She was poised to become the next CEO of Levi's, but she ended her career with the company with a resignation letter that I'm going to link to on the show notes page. You really need to read it. Tom.com slash 2106. She had been outspoken about children and the anti-child COVID policies of the past couple of years. And that got her into hot water, even though every single thing she said is not even debatable and has been thoroughly vindicated. Then we're also joined by her husband, Daniel Coatson, who has been talking an awful lot about this subject too, and he is now involved in a lawsuit against the federal government for attempting to stifle speech on the big tech platform. So he's not suing big tech saying, hey, you have to let me say X or Y. He's saying that we can show that government officials have been saying to these companies, you better crack down on this type of speech. And he is saying in his suit, you're not allowed to do that. So the two of them, I thought, would make for a pretty interesting conversation. So let's get right into it. Jennifer, let's start with you. A lot of people read your letter because it was in Barry Weiss's Substack, I think. But all the same, an interesting story, certainly. Obviously, it was a tremendous sacrifice for you, but a great shining example to the rest of us. Even if people have heard it, we just love hearing it again. I, I could There are Simpsons episodes I could watch over and over and over again. But I, I also think there are plenty of people who haven't, even after all this, haven't heard about your story. So let's talk about you were not exactly sweeping the floors at, oh, you were rhetorically at Levi's, but you had a pretty high position and we were in the running for an even higher position. So tell me what happened. I did. I'll give you the, the shortest version of my story. So I'd been at Levi's for 22 and a half years. So pretty uncommon in today's world to stay in a company that long. And I'd really worked up over the years, worked my way up from an entry-level position. You know, I started as an assistant marketing manager in 1999. And over the years, I came to hold various posts. I ran e-commerce for a while. I was the chief marketing officer for close to eight years. And in that role was really credited with the brand's return to health and part of a very successful IPO. And then in October of 2020, I was promoted to the global brand president for Levi's. And, and what that means is I oversaw and I led all product creation, you know, a design team, a merchandising team, which is sort of like the business side of product, marketing and store experience and a bunch of other stuff, strategy, go to market. So definitely a very senior position and a position that if done well, could potentially mean stepping into the CEO role if and when the current CEO were to retire. And I was a 
pretty beloved employee, I would say. You know, I'd been there a long time. I really loved the brand. I loved telling the stories about the brand. I was a committed mentor, you know, and team builder. But in March of 2020, when schools closed and lockdown started, I was astonished by the whole thing. And, you know, my husband and I had followed the data closely and it was very clear that there was significant age stratification of risk. If you just looked at data in Italy, I think the median age of death was well over 80. And I was just astonished that we would close schools and sacrifice kids' education. And I started to speak out about that primarily at first on social media. And I had very few followers. So it was sort of shouting into the void. But eventually I wrote some op-eds. I appeared on the local news. And about a year in, I appeared on Fox nationally. And it just, you know, almost from the get-go, you know, starting in the summer of 2020, when my peers, other executives came upon my Twitter feed, I guess, it was very controversial internally. And I was encouraged to stop. You know, I was going against public health officials. And and I was very focused. You know, there's a lot to comment on during COVID, but I was very focused on kids in school. I I was pretty disciplined about that. I'm a mom of four. I have been a public school parent since 2005. I was the only executive that had my children in public schools. And I became even more alarmed in the fall of 2020 when private schools open, but public schools remain closed. And I should say I lived in San Francisco and California is now known to have had the most restrictive closures and and were closed. The schools were closed the longest, close to 18 months. So I just kept speaking out despite the fact that I was being urged not to by my boss, the CEO, by my peers, HR lead, corporate communications lead, and that what I was doing was harmful and, and damaging and of course went against public health officials. I persisted. I didn't stop. And ultimately, that all came to a head in the late fall of 2021. I was asked if they could do a background check on me. The ostensible reason being, you know, I might in fact become the CEO. And that was standard operating procedure. The results of the background check, which I sort of expected at this point, were that I could not because my social media was too problematic. I was basically laid off but asked to stay until they found my replacement, I decided I did not want to accept the severance to be quiet. What quiet would mean would be not revealing the terms of the separation. And I didn't want to do that. I felt this was too important. And so I left on my own terms in a fairly, as you you indicate, public fashion and kind of announced and told the story of everything that had happened over the past two years. I could have sworn I read somewhere that they were trying to claim that they would never dream of trying to restrict your freedom of speech or something like that. Did you see them try to say that? Or am I imagining that? You're not really imagining it. I think they've tiptoed around that, trying not to kind of overtly lie. And to be super clear, you know, they never said, you can't say these things. They encouraged me strongly to think about what I was doing. There was a lot of pressure to stop. In the early days of that pressure, it was, you know, I would ask, are you telling me to stop? Are you telling me I have to stop? And they would say, no, we can't do that. But we would ask that you think about what you're saying and that when you speak, you speak on behalf of the company. And I should mention, I did not have Levi's in my profile. Now, of course, it's easy to figure that out, right? You just Google me and and it comes up. But I was 
careful to keep that separation. I think now that it's all become public, and ironically, the day after my piece ran, the citizens of San Francisco voted very decisively to recall the school board in San Francisco. And I would say the driving reason was their failure to open schools. So clearly a large majority agreed with me and shared my frustrations, but they were cowed and afraid to say anything publicly in the two years leading up. Because of course, if you saw what was happening to people that did, that seemed a very unappealing prospect. But they showed up at the ballot box and they voted to recall three members of the school board by a margin of you know 75%. And so I think at this point, what Levi's is saying is we support her advocacy on open schools, but she was confusing employees by undermining public health officials, to which I would say it's the public health officials who kept the schools closed. So those two things are in conflict. You can't say that you support my speaking up on that, but I can't go against the recommendations of the public health leaders. They kept the schools closed with their overly stringent recommendations. And so I think they're sort of scrambling to kind of walk a line where they say we support free speech, but this was out of bounds. And and I would just reject that characterization. And of course, free speech, (laughs) Ron Paul used to say, we don't have the First Amendment so we can talk about the weather. There's no need (laughs) to protect harmless speech that doesn't amount to anything. It's precisely the most controversial speech that requires protection. And so even though you know the First Amendment doesn't apply to a private company, all the same, the principle is the same, that it's, it's the controversial speech is where the, the rubber meets the road. Now, you say, and I know you're right, that you were very focused in the types of issues you talked about and you honed in primarily on children and schools. However, I know a certain husband of yours who may not have been quite so disciplined. Were they giving you trouble about your husband's tweets? And maybe if you want to jump in, Daniel, feel free to do that. Yeah, what I was just going to say, following up on what you were saying, Jen, as well, is that part of controversial speech should never really be criticizing the government or government agencies. That shouldn't really be controversial. That's sort of the basis of free speech, as I understand it. That's why one of the main reasons we defend it is because we need to discuss government policies. And so the idea that Levi's or anyone else would say, you cannot criticize the CDC, sets off for me the biggest alarm bells because that's exactly the speech that should be protected, regardless of of what crisis we're in. The government can always be criticized by private citizens in America. Yeah, and I would add an answer directly to your question. Yes, I was, I guess, warned about the things that he was saying as well. And and Daniel can tell you his own story, but he was much more outspoken about the harms of lockdowns and mandates and vaccine mandates. Ultimately, he is not vaccinated. I am. That was a requirement by the company. I did it. I adhered to every rule that we put forward. I got vaccinated in the spring of 21. I wore a mask when I was in the building. I encouraged my staff and employees to do the same. So at no time did I violate the company's policies, which is what they're also saying at this point, that I was undermining the company's policies. There was criticism and pushback, and it largely came from employees. And I should get to at some point the role that employees played in this, but about my husband's assertions on Twitter. And my answer there was very consistent and very short. It was, he doesn't work here. And do we really want to 
live in a world where, you know, you're deemed unemployable because a family member holds a certain view. What if my dad is a Republican, for instance, or a Trump voter, which, you know, in the hallowed halls of of Levi's in San Francisco is considered um, too far gone. Should we be unemployable because of, of views of our family members? That seems really dangerous to me. I should add also that on, on my own social media, on my Twitter, it was not even mentioned that I was related to, to Jennifer. I Staten. didn't know you, the two of you were related. Yeah. I, I followed tweets from the both of you and the thought never even occurred to me. And I, I'm, I'm fairly engaged in this COVID conversation and I didn't even realize it. Exactly. You're a perfect example, Tom. There were lots and lots of people that literally followed both of us on Twitter that had no idea that we were married because I wasn't using Jennifer's position to help my own point of view or get it out there at all. I was just a private citizen. Well, now, speaking of that, let's talk about the lawsuit here because it's an interesting case. You're not really, as far as I can see, getting into the question of what is the nature of Facebook or Twitter? Is it a this? Is it a that? And what laws apply to it? It's more a question of it appears to be the case that U.S. government officials have been pressuring these institutions to do what it itself probably could not get away with doing, which is to block speech. So it simply delegates that that power to them and says, we want you to do the speech blocking. And you're saying, well, you, you can't do that either. Yeah, exactly. So some of the listeners are probably unaware that I'm involved in a lawsuit. We are three plaintiffs, myself, Michael Sanger, and Mark Cengizi. And we are suing the United States government for repressing our right to free speech by ordering the social media companies to repress our speech. And there's going to be a hearing in about two weeks in Columbus, Ohio. And there are efforts made to depose the Surgeon General of the United States because he is literally directing Twitter and other social media companies to censor what's called, quote, misinformation. Misinformation is defined as anything that is in disagreement with the government position. So again, as we were talking about earlier, it's shocking to me that in the United States, the idea that any private citizen could criticize government policy is even questioned. Everyone should be running to defend that right. Without free speech, there's no freedom of any kind. I've been reading these articles. In fact, you sent me a couple of them. And I have no objection to the way they lay out the issues involved. But the average person looking at this and saying, well, is this case really about the right to spread misinformation? Well, I suppose in an extremely abstract sense it is, yes. But what it really is about is should we allow this institution to be the determining factor as to whether something is misinformation? Because sometimes it seems like, quote, misinformation are just statements that are embarrassing to the regime. Well, I don't want the regime itself then to have a monopoly on determining what's misinformation or not. And obviously it has dramatically misused that power over the past couple of years because yesterday's misinformation is today's commonplace. That's right. Yes, well, correct. So I was just once again suspended by Twitter two days ago for a week. I've been locked out of my Twitter account. I'm not allowed to tweet. I'd like to read what I wrote. So here was what I tweeted on Monday. The vast majority have realized that every COVID policy from the lockdowns and masks to the tests 
death coding and vaccine passes has been one giant fraud. That was a quote from Michael Singer. I wrote, Michael Singer was banned forever by Twitter for writing that. So it must be true. Pass it on. A few hours later, Twitter suspended my account. So I'm wondering how an opinion can ever be misinformation. Right. So again, that goes to show that there's, let's say, some disingenuousness going on here. An opinion is simply an opinion. and Everybody can have an opinion. And in a way, in case these people really were thinking about the long run, which I don't think they are, by letting people express their opinions freely, then you're reminding everybody that half of what you're reading is probably just somebody's BS opinion. But if you give the impression that, oh, we filtered out all the stuff that's wrong, then people will look at information and just believe everything. Yes, it's dangerous because we want people to think for ourselves. That's the whole basis of any sort of free society. As I said, you have to have a free flow of information. That's why the First Amendment exists. Jennifer, let's get back to you for a minute. You made a very, very significant professional sacrifice here in what you did. Obviously, you had to give that a lot of thought. And you're, you know, it's a massive sacrifice. What does this mean for you as a person, as a professional, as uh, for your family? Look, it's hard, I think. I mean, obviously, there's a financial sacrifice. I think it's hard to overstate how much I loved working there. And so I think the emotional sacrifice is almost greater. I'll, I'll figure out the financial piece, although it's a little nerve wracking. But I had spent 22 and a half years there. My friends, all my friends were there. I was very invested in the success of the brand and the company, but more importantly, the the culture, because I, you know, what they profess, and I think it's particularly egregious that this is all happening and it's Levi's. I think it's illustrative of what's happening in the broader culture, but they profess to be this sort of bastion of rugged individualism. They've stood for freedom around the world for decades. And they profess to kind of support this idea of profits through principles and to be very principled in their stance around the value of using your voice and the, the way that everyday people can participate in, in civic engagement. And so, you know, I did not come by the decision easily. I would say it was a long two years. I was continuously urged to stop, as I've said, and I would kind of pause and take a beat for a while, but I couldn't bring myself to do it because I just, it was just so clear to me that this was wrong and that kids were suffering and that the 50,000 public school students locked out of school in San Francisco were primarily disadvantaged students, poor students, you know, Black students. And when wealthy kids went back to school in the fall and everyone remained silent. I just, my mind was blown, Tom. I couldn't, I couldn't deal with the unfairness of it all. And again, this is in the throes of everybody screaming about equality. It's right after the summer of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd and everyone's weighing in from companies to individuals about the fact that Black Lives Matter, which of, of course they they do. And yet we were locking Black children out of any opportunity. Education is the only path to opportunity. So I couldn't bring myself to stop. I do have some history of speaking out on unpopular things, which I can get to later, but I couldn't do it. And at some point midway through the course of the two years, I sort of understood in my heart of hearts what the inevitable result would be, and I accepted it. 
you know, I rooted, I didn't like it, but I accepted it. And this principle of protecting and advocating for children, but also of everyday citizens challenging unfair dictates felt too important. It felt more important than me possibly being the CEO, which is something I would have loved to have been. Let me be clear. I would have been the first female CEO. I would have been a longtime employee that ascended the ranks. I love the brand and the the company and what they profess to stand for. I would have loved to have that opportunity, but it just paled in comparison to me. And you know what? One person can have influence because courage begets courage is what I always say. And one person speaking out enables others to potentially feel strong enough to do so. And I I think at this point, I, I wouldn't say it's been declared, but I think there's a majority and the articles are already being written about what a disaster the policy around closed schools was. So I wasn't wrong. Not that you have to be right to use your voice. I mean, that's kind of what you and Daniel were talking about before, right? It's the principle of free speech. But it is really disturbing, as you said, that what's misinformation today can be truth tomorrow. I mean, how many things, you know, playgrounds were closed, surface transmission, don't wear a mask, wear a mask. The lab leak, which is at the very least considered a viable theory at this point, how can we say you can't challenge the government? It's like if no parent had stood up and challenged the public school closures, I really honestly don't know that they'd be open now. All right, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Now, I know you've heard me talk about Blinkist before, but listen to me, I'm about to make your life and your brain much better. Now, it's true by now, many of you know that Blinkist is an app that takes thousands of important nonfiction titles and summarizes them for you in 15-minute so-called blinks that you can either read or listen to. This means they get rid of all the fluff and give you just what you need to know. And you may find you want to read that whole book. You may also find this book would be a waste of my time. Blinkist offers titles on all different subjects from all different perspectives. They even have a book by me, Meltdown. They have Murray Rothbard's For a New Liberty or Economic Facts and Fallacies by Thomas Sowell. Go read that book, then listen to the blink and the information will stay in your head more effectively. Honestly, I think Sowell is one of the best writers I have ever come across and he has such a sharp mind and he's such a great economist and Blinkist gives you a great way to get your feet wet with Thomas Sowell's material. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com woods to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com woods to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com woods. I think I'm getting into something that's maybe too personal of an issue and you feel free to tell me to jump in a lake, but just because you don't work for Levi's anymore doesn't necessarily mean you have to be completely out of the industry. There must be people who would be very happy to have somebody of your experience with their firm. But are you just off corporate jobs at this point? Like, are you just so turned off by it that it has no appeal to you? Or I'm just curious about your future. My assumption when I chose to go out this way was I would never get another job in corporate America again. You know, I was a heretic, essentially. You know, I was decrying these policies, which many companies, I believe, would support. You also have to understand right now in corporate America, you know, it used to be the purview of conservatives (laughs) um, and Republicans, and we thought of big business as very right-leaning. 
I would argue that's not the case anymore for the most powerful companies in America. I mean, look at the the big tech companies. And I should say, I'm not actually a registered Republican. I would have you know, identify myself as left of center for the 30 years I've been voting. I'm an independent now. But, you know, San Francisco, Levi's, it's a little bit of a very far left bubble. And, you know, I went against that orthodoxy of everything that they were asserting that was in line with the local government mandates. And even once Biden became president, the national government mandates. But I revealed the sort of inner workings of a company. That's a violation. So my assumption was even if anybody supported the things I was saying, that there would not be a place for me ever again in corporate America. That was my assumption. What I'm finding is that is not the case. You know, I am getting calls from brands and companies and and recruiters, which is very surprising to me. And it says, again, there's been this silent majority that is very concerned about what's happening and they're happy to kind of support someone who was willing to kind of take a stand. And of course, as you mentioned, I'm a skilled leader. So who doesn't want someone like that running their brand and business? I'm not going to do that right now. I am going to take a break. You know, I've worked for 32 years in corporate America and I want to take a little break. So I am making a documentary film, which we can talk about it. And I just started writing a book. And I, I wouldn't say it's off the table at some point. And I'm really heartened to know that people are still interested in me, not as this pain in the butt, but as a skilled corporate leader. And I, at some point, you know, may take advantage of that. Well, that goes to show, as you're suggesting, that there may be an interesting gap between what is said for public consumption by the CEO's office and what they really think. I mean, I expect a lot of these people probably do believe most of what goes out in the press releases, but they also know how a business has to work. And that sometimes I work with people I disagree with. Big deal. You know, big deal. Why, why shouldn't I hire so-and-so if that person could do a good job for me? I, I bet there are people who think that way in real life, but, you know, in public life, well, they have the outraged PR firm that writes their letters for them for the public to see. Yeah, I would add one thing I we haven't spoken about and Daniel's case with his co-plaintiffs is really about the the government intervening to pressure private companies. You know, in my case it was really employee pressure. It was just it was so loud the employee pressure and the things I was being called and accused of being a racist being an anti-vaxxer despite being vaccinated, anti-science, anti-trans came up at some point. I don't even know how that fits in the mix. And the employee pressure, the letter writing to the CEO, the public commentary in our town halls that were really just ad hominem attacks in conjunction with the social media mob tagging my employer, demanding that I be fired, demanding that Levi's be boycotted. Now, none of these social media efforts ever really picked up any traction or steam. So one could say, well, ignore it. What's the difference? The business continued to thrive. And I would suggest that's exactly what we should have done. But the combination, and you can get just in this rabbit hole, right, where you're looking at these emails and you're looking at these Twitter trolls, and it feels like it's on the front page of the New York Times if you're the CEO, and you lose all perspective and context. Because the fact is, the business was good. It was strong, and we emerged strong from close to a year of store shutdowns, et cetera. And 
To my mind, there was a simple and easy solution, which was to say, we've always advocated for people to use their voice. You don't have to agree with everything Jen says to support her right to do so. And we're not going to talk about it anymore internally. We're not going to talk about it. Nothing she's doing is affecting her ability to do her job. And so we've heard enough on the matter. And we support you and your right to use your voice in the things that you care about. And I think this is something companies need to wrestle with right now. Otherwise, who's going to work there if you're told you can't have an opinion on anything? If you're told political speech, and this should never have been political, but is is not allowed in our company. And, and I should say, I was criticized also for political speech. You know, I briefly spoke out about the recall in California of Gavin Newsom, which to me, speaking out about that was related to the school closures. And I was told, you really can't weigh in on that. And I conceded and I deleted those tweets because, again, I was trying to be disciplined and focused. But, I mean, that's clearly political speech. And I'd spoken out on other political matters, my support of certain candidates, Elizabeth Warren in the Democratic primary. You can laugh at that, but that was where I was at the time. And so it's not that they didn't support the idea of political speech. It was the viewpoint that I was putting forward that was deemed too problematic. And The board you know, members of Levi's are friendly with Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. They told Jen she could not criticize the governor of California because they're friends with her. The family. The, there's still a large stake family ownership and there's a relationship there. Yeah, so even when there isn't overt state involvement. Sometimes if you peel back a few layers, you find that it is there after all. Or sometimes it says people don't want to be against what the standard view is, especially if it's being pushed by the government. Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting is, you, you know, you have overt government pressure and then you have sort of this pressure from the mob, for lack of a better word, and it drives incredible self-censorship. Because again, like I said, if you're watching what's happening to me in San Francisco, which was pretty public or in the company, why would you say what you think at the risk of being deemed an unemployable thing, like a a racist or at the risk of losing your job? And so, you know, I think there's this two-pronged thing happening where you do have overt government censorship through pressure on private companies, but then you have this angry mob that drives incredible self-censorship. And at that point, how can you have any open marketplace of ideas? How can you really have free speech at all? And a lot of people really were being felt repressed and censored. As Jen is saying, I'm thinking back to the summer of 2020, when Jen and I were both starting to get a little bit involved in social media, and it was getting difficult. We were having conversations. Why are we doing this? I know what kept me going. I started getting private messages on Twitter from people saying, thank you. I thought I was losing my mind. I thought I was the only one. Thank you. Please keep doing what you're doing. Every day I would get messages like that, Tom, saying I was up all night crying. There were literally suicidal people writing me. Thanks to people like you on Twitter, I can keep going. I know it sounds dramatic, but those are literally word for word messages I was getting. And that's what kept me going. I imagine people that were suffering home alone and lockdown that had no hope for the future that thought that this was going to be their life and that they knew that there were people like me and Jen out there fighting for them made a world of difference. That is great. Of course, I've gotten, I think a lot of us who are trying to tell the truth about this have gotten that, that I appreciate. Now, I don't just appreciate the information. I appreciate the fact that, you know, it's not popular for you to 
give us this information, but we all need it. We all know it's right. And all the official people are acting as if things that are happening right before our, under our noses are not happening. We're all supposed to sit here and pretend that Sweden doesn't exist. I mean, Sweden had 1.4 million children in schools all this time and not one death. And we're just supposed to pretend that that's, that, that didn't happen. We just have to have the conversation as if that didn't happen. It's yeah, crazy. You say it that way. And believe me, I turn this thought over in my mind every day. It's like this idea that the truth can be sitting right in front of your face, but you're not allowed to say it is so alarming to me. And I, you know, I will tell you what I veered every now and again from kids in schools. I had a, a brief kind of moment where I was raging against the, the fact that doctors were writing all these op-eds saying they weren't going to treat unvaccinated patients. And that was viewed as noble. You know, I had posted medical studies linking obesity to poor health outcomes. And, you know, I was told you really should take those down. And I said, but they're true. It's wrong. It violates the Hippocratic Oath. It is leading to poor health outcomes. If we could talk about this issue, lives would be saved. And, you know, I was told, yeah, it's true, but you can't say it. And that was so alarming to me on its face. If we're asked to deny the truth that is sitting there right in front of our face and say another thing or not say anything at all, well, I don't even know what to say to that. And and so to me, that was why it was worth it in the end, although it's scary. And I don't want to you know, I'm very lucky. I've worked a long time and I've had a lot of professional success and we're financially more than stable. It's still a very different future than I envisioned for myself. And I have to figure out what I'm going to do. I'm the sole breadwinner and I have to support my my family and I will figure it out. But it just, that seems so dire to me that we could be asked to deny the truth in front of our eyes and people would go along with that willingly to protect some political notion, I I couldn't submit to that. I dare say none of us should. Well, I wonder if that combined with the rest of it is what persuaded you to start this documentary project. Are, are you able to say something about it? Maybe even mention that one of our favorite people is involved? I'm not sure which favorite person. Oh, but, Jay uh, Bhattacharya. Oh, yeah, Jay is. Yeah, Dr. Jay is involved. So I made a documentary film that came out in 2020 on Netflix. It won an Emmy for Best Investigative Documentary. It's called Athlete A. And it's about the culture of abuse and cruelty and the Olympic movement and gymnastics in particular. I was an elite gymnast as a child. It's hard to overstate the cruelty and abusive nature of the coaching culture. And that all sort of came to a head with the conviction of, of Larry Nasser, the doctor for Team USA Gymnastics for 30 years, who abused over, sexually abused over 500 athletes. Oh my so, gosh. Athlete Day is about that. It's about him, but it it is not about him as a one bad apple type of a scenario, but about him as the sort of inevitable outcome of an incredibly abusive culture. So I connect it, you know, to the culture that's been in place since I started gymnastics in 1975. So I have made one documentary. I produced that one. I concepted it and, and, produced it along with other very skilled producers and an amazing director team. And so now that I find myself without a job, I decided I'm going to make another documentary and I'm going to direct it or co-direct it with a guy named Andrew James. And it is about the, the impacts of the school closures. And we want to tell the stories of families and children that have been affected 
in all kinds of ways. I mean, the stories that, you know, Tom, I've talked to probably 60 families in the last month trying to kind of find the families we're going to follow. And the stories are all just so harrowing from kids with, you know, extreme disabilities that were denied services, kids with learning challenges who just have fallen so far backward, kids who have dropped out, who might have been the first in their family to go to college, but now have not graduated high school, immigrant families. It's just like story after story. And so we're going to follow families in both California, the state closed the longest, and and families in Florida closed the second shortest, close to the, the shortest. And I will say the families in Florida have been challenged too. You know, just that first three months of closures just knocked people out of the system. Some have not come back. I think there's 3 million children nationally that are still lost in the system. Now we're going to compare all of these family stories, um, not compare, but set it against the national backdrop and the extreme politicization of the issue, the silencing of debate and dissent in the medical community, but also parents you know, at school board meetings, et cetera. We have started filming. We did interview Dr. Bhattacharya. We've talked to a public school teacher in Oakland who was a teacher for special needs kids. She ended up walking away from that just a few months ago. We also have spoken with a doctor at UCSF in emergency medicine who saw as early as May 2020, just the extreme impacts on adolescents and suicide attempts in the ER, et cetera, and that's continued. And then we've also talked to the man who started and led the San Francisco Board of Ed recall. And his story is just so powerful. You know, he grew up in India in abject poverty and, you know, credits education with his way out. And he couldn't stand to see what was happening to children, the most disadvantaged children, obviously being harmed the most. So, We'll be shooting again at the end of this month in the Bay Area. We've found about four families with really powerful stories. We are also actively fundraising. So if anybody is interested in supporting this message and this, you know, story, we think, I guess at the end of the day, we need a faithful recording of the facts of what happened. Because as you are already aware, you know, they're attempting to rewrite history. We didn't do a lockdown. Schools weren't closed. There's no such thing as learning loss. And none of those things are true. We need to know where kids are so we can help them now where they really are. And we need to record what happened so that it doesn't ever happen again. This can't happen again. Too many kids have been sacrificed. How can people follow what you guys are up to, particularly this project you have? Well, that's a great question. Anyone can contact me directly. My Twitter is just my name, Jennifer Say, and I do post periodically there about, you know, the film. I've posted some stills and and I was going to post some quotes pretty soon from the interviews we've done. And we are contemplating, I'll just say it, starting a Kickstarter so folks who who want to support the message can do so in any in any way. But for anyone interested in potentially a larger investment or, or even donation, and you can do it either way, contact me directly on Twitter, and I'd be happy to facilitate that. We've had a lot of interest. Daniel and I have put our own money in as well. We think it's so important. And what's been really heartening is so many people want to contribute and help. Editors have reached out to me, graphic designers, people with a skill set that could help get this message out or are happy to do so. And we're so grateful for that. So 
but yeah, just DM me directly. My DMs are open and stay tuned for you know more information about a, a Kickstarter. And of course, Jennifer Say is S-E-Y. So if you're trying to find her, I'll also put, uh, I'll put your Twitter on the show notes page too, tomwoods.com slash 2106. Daniel, it's a little trickier to contact you because we don't know what the status of your Twitter will be. I know. Well, hopefully my Twitter will be back in six days and two hours or something. Okay, like as that. long as you don't do anything else. Or, or is, it, is this a matter of you can't do anything and you're just being punished for a week? Yes, it's a, it's, this is how they do it a lot when they suspend you. They put you on read only. So okay. you're allowed to go on because they want you to, to dream of being able to tweet again. <laughs> so it is, I got to say, I'm sort of staying off because looking on it without being able to comment is frustrating. It's torture, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. They, so their goal is, this is what they do to people. They suspend you for a week because that's how they want to censor us. Now they think Daniel's going to be scared when he comes back in six days. He's going to be careful about what he writes because he doesn't want us to kick him off forever. That's what happened to Michael Sanger. I don't know. He's had a really important Twitter page from the beginning, and he wrote an important book about the Chinese influence on our lockdown policies, and he's been permanently expelled from Twitter. And what they do is they try and do it so that if Michael Sanger wanted to open another account with a different name, Twitter won't let him. It's not just his account. He personally, Michael Singer, is never allowed to go on Twitter again because of what I read earlier, which is should be uh, disturbing to anyone. But yeah, check out my Twitter page. It's my first name and last name. It's still there. And hopefully in six days, I'll be tweeting again. All right. Very good. Very good. So I'll have both of your Twitter accounts listed on the show notes page. Well, it's a, I'm sure this is not the direction you expected your family to take over the past few years, but the world is what it is at this point. And all I can say is I'm glad you guys are fighters and that you're going to keep on doing what you're doing because the world is full of cowards. So the example of, of one or two courageous people extends very, very far. So thank you for being that. Definitely. Yeah, that's what I told Jen when she had doubts sometimes about what she was about to do. I told her to think about, as I was saying before, all the other people that wrote to us or people that we don't even know that we'll hear and see about what she did and we'll be inspired. And I told Jen that I was lucky because I get to be married to my hero. Excellent. That, now, that, what a beautiful note on which to end our episode. Thanks so much to you both. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having us. All right. Incidentally, as we wrap up here, just shortly after we finished this conversation, Jennifer wrote back to me and said, really the way to reach her, if you have interest in this project she's working on, maybe you want to help with it, financially or otherwise, then the way to reach her is via the following email address. And I'll post this on the show notes page also. Press inquiries at sayeverything.com. But say is spelled like her last name, S-E-Y. So press inquiries at sayeverything.com. Tomorrow on the program, I got Hal Cranmer joining me. He owns a series of uh, long-term care facilities. And we're going to talk to him about what COVID was like for him and the kind of policies he implemented at his facilities in the midst of wild hysteria everywhere where older people weren't even allowed to see their relatives. We're going to talk about what he did, what the results were, and what the lessons for the future may be. So that is definitely not one to miss. So I hope you'll tune in then. And by the way, if you like and appreciate what goes on here at the Tom Woods Show, then support the show as a supporting listener. You get so many goodies in return, you're going to feel 
just like a kid in a candy store when you see all the goodies I give you as my thank you for supporting the show. How do you examine all the wonderful things you get as gifts from me? It's very simple. You head over to supportinglisteners.com and you look there. By the way, that's not a generic website that a lot of content creators use. I think people think that. That's my site only. You want to support the Tom Woods Show, supportinglisteners.com. That's why it's there. All right, everybody, I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.